I'd like you to think of your favorite Bible passage. Your favorite Bible passage, right? How many of you picked the fall of man? How many of you picked that passage that we had this morning? You know, it's, it, it's not something that we say, this is going to be my favorite. It's not even something that we might regularly turn to. The website, um, Bible Gateway, uh, that allows people to search and read the Bible in different languages and in different translations, has a blog post which lists the 100 most searched for passages. What number do you think the fall comes in at? You know, is it, is it up there at number one? Is it? No. Is it in the top 10? Top 50? It's not even in that 100 list at all. It's not one that people want to go and read and think about. And I think that's possibly because we see something of ourselves in there and we don't want to hear about the fact that we sometimes do things wrong. Similarly, it's not in the lists generated by you version that does the smartphone app or Bible study. I couldn't find it anywhere among the lists of popular verses. But yet it's one that we know. It's an account that we might learn as a child. Thankfully, my two were able to recall it earlier. And it's got maybe the most important aspect of human-God relationship in the Old Testament. It's got the fact that we are a fallen people. That we don't live rightly. That humanity has sinned and sins. Now, of course, the use of the word sin is a bit unpopular today. It's not commonly bandied about. But that's what we do. We do things that are wrong. We go against God. We sin. In thought, in word, and in our actions, in our deed, as it might be referred to. But this passage tells us something too of that God. In our sinful state, he will search for us. He will find us. And he will continue to love us. Unless we recognize that we are a sinful humanity. Unless an individual out there on the street realizes it. It becomes incredibly difficult for them to get to the point of realizing that Christ has died for that sin. 
that Christ has died for humanity and for them as an individual person. Without recognizing our own hopelessness, it's impossible to realize the hope that we can have that comes from God. But thankfully, God is God. Not just full of power, not just the creator, but God is the God who is full of love. So this passage that we don't read very often starts in a beautiful place, a wonderful place, the Garden of Eden, the place of creation. Many species, many plants, all at peace together as things are intended to be. And the happy couple that God has made have been put there in a place of trust. They have been given a job to do. And they should get on with it. But among their role there is to make sure that they do not eat of one tree. All the others is theirs. Just the one. It's the one law that is given to them. Now, around the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there's no black and yellow hazard warning tape. There's no great big fence erected with razor wire at the top. There's no sign saying, keep away, as a reminder. But God has done his risk assessment and has told them, don't eat. And he feels that telling Adam is what is required. And he's done this task. And that's what Adam should pay attention to. He shouldn't eat. Perhaps Adam in sharing this message with Eve, has taken it a bit further. Ooh, don't just not eat it. Don't go anywhere near it. Or maybe that's a rule that Eve creates for herself. It was actually perfectly all right for them to go to the tree, to see the tree, to touch the tree. The rule is... Don't eat. But in their mind, they've added things. And that's how the serpent makes his way in. It's the way that he makes his way in to Adam and Eve, it's the way that he makes his way into our lives. By saying, what does really God say to you? What did that message say? What is the scripture? Did he really say, you must not eat from any tree? And Eve says, oh, that's not it. I can eat from any tree. And the minute that thought enters, 
there's starting to be something sown. Do you say, I can't eat from any tree. It's, we mustn't touch this tree, which is not what God had said. The serpent starts to sow doubts into the mind. And by allowing our own laws to be established of what God expects, we start to convict ourselves of sins that are perhaps not sin. For example, the idea of rest on the Lord's day. When the Pharisees see Jesus, they're not happy about how he lives on the Lord's day. How they might have gleaned a bit of wheat. How Jesus might have healed somebody. They'll look at this and say, oh, why do you not obey the commandments? Was Jesus deliberately not keeping that day holy? Or is it the Pharisees trying to interpret and add to the law that spins something new that makes it difficult for the people to live? In more modern times, it can be tricky if you've tried to establish laws as to what it is to keep the day holy. For Orthodox Jews who mustn't make a fire, can they switch on an electric light? Is that fire? Is the process of flicking the switch fire? And it has become a difficulty for some. We have to remember why God makes his law and how he calls us to live. Through the conversation that the woman has, she's not got her name at this point. We don't know her as Eve until the end of the passage. The woman, Eve, speaks with the serpent And gets convinced that she would like to gain the knowledge of good and evil. She would like to be like God. But she fails to realize that Adam and her already have the ability to love. The ability to make decisions. The means to communicate, to be creative, to give things names. They are already like God in many ways because they are made in God's image. And so the promised benefit that the serpent gives is maybe not that much more of a gain in itself. Be like God. 
And again, this is one of the ways the evil evil one works. He tries to undermine you and say, you can have something which maybe you already have. He says, I can give you something which is not his to give. And he does not spell out the consequences of the actions that he's trying to encourage you to take part in. If you are to go into hospital for an operation, before you agree for the procedure to be carried out, the doctor will discuss with you the pros and cons of what will proceed of what the operation will involve. They'll explain what the full risk is, what the benefits can be, but also what might go wrong. The serpent offers a list of what he thinks might be right, but never tells you the danger. It's got to be a great thing If they just eat this fruit. But he doesn't say about how it will damage the relationship between God and humanity. How we will become a sinful people. Both Eve and Adam eat the fruit. And it would seem that there was nothing to stop it. They just do it. Adam knew he could have stopped the conversation at any time. But Adam goes along with it. And as they do that, there's a lack of gratitude for the blessings that they already have. They could have eaten from any tree in the garden but they're not happy with the idea of any tree they desire that one and this is the nature of greed be it for food or for wealth or for sexual satisfaction the desire for something tasty makes us blinkered to the blessings that we already have the blessings we have in our life, the blessings that we have in our relationship with God, the blessings that we have in our relationship with one another. So often it is that we look for something else and forget what we have. The greener grass is perhaps on the other side of the road. And that leads to a sheep heading out of a perfectly good field into the path of oncoming traffic. And that's what they discover as they eat. The moment the two of them take a bite... Adam and Eve know that there's something wrong. 
They suddenly realize they have lack of clothes. They have nakedness. And they begin to think, well, that's wrong. And so they hide. And like earlier, when the children hid, they can be easily found. Especially by God, who knows where they are without looking. The confession of sin is far from exemplary. Adam is the first one to speak. And he blames not just the woman, but he blames God. He says, it's your fault you put the woman here. He would have been fine if he'd just not had that companion. I wouldn't have eaten it at all. And sometimes in our life, we blame God. And the thing is, it's not God's fault. The decisions we make, the things that we do that are wrong are not God's fault. When people suffer, it's not God's fault. But we long for somebody to blame. Perhaps even we long for somebody to blame when there is no one to blame. But you know what? God's big. And he's heard that accusation before. And he puts that aside. And he hears the next bit of the story. And Eve, though she could have said, yes, I admit, I ate the fruit, she blames the serpent. And yes, the serpent is there. The evil one is present. The evil one does convince her and work away at her. And we have to be aware that the evil one when we first turn away from him, will continue to try and work away at us. Saying no once to something doesn't mean to say that we won't have to say no again and again and again. We have to be strong and trust that we can turn away from the evil one. She took the decision to pick and eat and share. She has no one to blame. When we do something wrong, we have to confess that we've done the thing wrong. For then we're able to be forgiven.
God's reaction to the fall is swift and it's just and it's loving. He tells them that the reality of life, the life that they now know because they have eaten of the tree of knowledge, is that there will be pain in childbirth. And that working the land will be hard. These are facts that they would not have discovered. But that they will now know. But at the same time, there's promises along with those things that we might consider judgment. Promises that there will be future generations. There will be children to humanity, to this first couple. And there's a promise that there will be crops that will grow and that will feed them and give them nourishment. Although they may no longer live in the Garden of Eden, they will still have food to eat. And the two are led out of Eden. And that's for their protection. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask the Father to lead us not into temptation. How good it is still to go further and to be away from temptation itself. And so they are led away from the place that they were tempted. Which has the benefit of removing the possibility of eating from the tree of life. There had been no prohibition on it. Only the tree of knowledge. It would seem that God had intended the man and his woman to live forever, or at least have that possibility. Eternal life with God was intended, but not as people with sin. Because they had now eaten of the tree of knowledge, a new way of life must be found. And we hear of it, just a glimpse of it, the slightest, slightest glimpse of it, that from the woman will come a child that will strike the serpent's head. Though the serpent will bite that son's heel. And this is the first sign in the scriptures of the gospel hope that we have in Christ our Lord. This is the hope promised right at the beginning, right at the Garden of Eden, of Christ coming and crushing the serpent's head, ending the hold that sin will have on us. But with the crushing of the serpent's head, 
Christ dies on the cross. Although our mortal life will end, the damage done by eating Eden's fruit of knowledge will mean that our certain death need not be true. For our eternal life can carry on beyond the grave. We can have the life that God intended, that he made for us right at the beginning of time. God, in this passage, does not simply promise action in the future, though. He also does something for Adam and Eve at that time. As they leave the garden, he gives them skins to wear, coats, to keep them warm, to protect them as they go out into the world. God provides not just for our spiritual needs, but here at this time seems for Adam and Eve to do an act of social need too. Just as he would later feed his people in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, he provides Adam and Eve with something that they are able to wear until they are able to source for themselves. This perhaps challenges us how we perceive mission, how we perceive what God intends us to do, how we must meet the needs of others. For in his provision, in his judgments, in his hope, There is always mercy and grace. There is always love and hope for our present need and for the future. Because that is who God is. A God of love as well as power. So let us be people who are ready to love, ready to know that That sin in the beginning does not hold us, but to share his grace and mercy and see the kingdom grow. Amen.